For this we ask in his precious name. Amen. Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read briefly from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It's early in Jesus' ministry. He's just been baptized. Sort of that, that marking of his earthly public ministry. And just as soon as he has been baptized, he receives from the Father this blessing. You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit gets to work. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. Amen. Isn't that an extraordinary sentence there in verse 1? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How many of you have felt that? It it, it reminds me of Job's experience. We get that behind-the-scenes look with Job, right? Where Satan is there among the sons of God and God says, what have you been up to? And he goes, oh, I've been roaming to and fro over the earth. Peter says, seeking someone to devour. And God says, oh, have you tasted my servant Job? God seriously throws Job under the bus. Here is the Spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We don't like wilderness. We don't like temptation. More often than not, when we face wilderness, when we face temptation, when we face pain or deprivation, we have one thing in mind, don't we? Make it stop. If you think about our prayer life, when we pray for our problems, what's our number one prayer? Make it stop. But something happens when we're in pain. 
Something very important happens when we're in wilderness, in deprivation. It happened to Job, it happened to Jesus, it happened to Israel, and in this morning's sermon passage, Psalm 63, it's about to happen to David. So turn back with me to Psalm 63. Our sermon passage this morning is the Psalm of the Month. Thank you. Psalm 63. We're going to read this morning from Psalm 63. And here again, the word of the Lord. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus, I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands to your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it, shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Amen. And amen. Back in the 1630s, Boston was a popular place, at least for Puritans. They were coming over by the thousands. Ship after ship after ship, it would become known as the Great Migration. There would actually be several more Great Migrations, but it's the first one to be called the Great Migration. They're rolling into Boston Harbor over here throughout the 1630s, and they describe this place as a howling wilderness. Sound familiar? Is that what you see when you drove into town today? A howling wilderness? You see, there was this understanding of the wilderness in America that persisted for over 200 years. Americans saw the wilderness as a place of darkness, a place of demonic activity, a place to be conquered by Christians, domesticated and civilized. That's American history from 1630 to 1880. But then something happened. Something dramatic. We ran out of wilderness. And in the 1880s, 1890s, a bunch of Americans suddenly realized, we've conquered all the wilderness. We've turned large swaths of it into farmland, into cities. 
Now what do we do with wilderness? So they invented national parks. And the American relationship with wilderness flipped. For 250 years, wilderness was the place you went to prove yourself, to conquer nature, to domesticate the wild. Starting about 1900, wilderness is where you go to be refreshed. Wilderness is where you go for recreation. How many of you go to a national park on vacation? Vacation. Do you know that 250 years ago, Americans would look at you like you're insane? You go live in the woods for a week on purpose? You give people money to do that? We've learned something very important about wilderness, haven't we? Something about a relationship between humans and the wild. It's something that is found as a theme throughout Scripture and comes to a poetic head in Psalm 63. David is in the wilderness of Judah. And he realizes it is simultaneously a howling wilderness of darkness and of demonic activity. And yet it is simultaneously a place of refreshment, a place of renewal, a place where God meets with his people and blesses him. This is what Psalm 63 is pressing upon us today in its poetry, that Jesus is always with us. And the wilderness opens our eyes to that reality. Jesus is always with us. So let us follow him in praise. Look at the psalm with me. Notice in verse 1, David accounts for this wilderness of Judah as being a true deprivation. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Now, by simply saying that there's no water there, we can trace the economic consequences of that, right? If there's no water, guess what else there isn't? Grass or vegetation or any animal that eats grass or vegetation or any human existence that has to live on vegetation or animals that eat vegetation. So when David says very simply and very quietly, I am in the wilderness where it is dry and where there is thirst and where there is no water, David is saying there's nothing. Nothing good, nothing prosperous, nothing friendly, nothing fun. This isn't actually, so there's a little bit of a false comparison here, right? This isn't actually the national parks as we conceive it, right? Those are very beautiful and very lush, except Death Valley, and that's what David's describing. This is like Death Valley. Where it is dry and thirsty, and nothing lives here, and nothing grows here. David is in a place of wilderness, and for him, on the surface, as he looks around, wilderness is a place devoid of life. There is no visible signs of life. No water, no plants, no animals, no people. But guess who? Who is there? If you were in Eric's Sabbath school class, you know the correct answer to this. It's either Jesus or seven. This one's Jesus. My God, you, my God. 
There alone in this lifeless void that he calls the wilderness, David looks out as it were, and there's a pair of eyes in the dark and demonic places of this world staring back at him. And those eyes he knows. God, you, my God. These pronouns become incredibly important. Let me read verses 1 through 8 very briefly with just pronouns. You, my, I, you, my, you, my, you, I, you, your, 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 my, you, I, you, I, my, your, my, my, you, I, you, I, you, you, your, I, my, you, your, me. There's almost 40 of them. They're all first person and second person. He has no water. He has no food. He has no friends. He has no family. And what's David see clear as the sun in the noonday sky? God. He's alone with God. There's nothing else there. The wilderness is a great place to meet God. The wilderness is where we go to be stripped away from all the industrialization that makes us think we're machines rather than humans. The wilderness is where we go to be stripped away from all the economics pursuits that make us think we're a cog in some cosmic wheel instead of humans made in the image of God. This wilderness is a place where God leads his people into fellowship with him by depriving them of every other distraction. In fact, many theologians have looked back on Israel's wandering in the wilderness and referred to it very affectionately and almost scandalously as a honeymoon. When God and his people got away from the world and were alone together, loving together, And so David's heart is bursting with love. Early will I seek for you. He has no reason to get up early in the morning. There's no commute to beat. There's no early hours to be there. No one is expecting him. And yet, while on vacation in the wilderness, David is getting up before the crack of dawn. Because there's something really exciting about to happen out there in the middle of nowhere where nothing exists. God's going to show up. And he wants to meet him. Early I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. David reinterprets the pangs of discomfort in his body as having a spiritual reality. My flesh longs for you. David truly is hungering and thirsting. He's in a dry and barren land. But this physical pain, David says, is but a picture of the spiritual reality. He wants God. My friends, do you want God? Do you want God in your life? Do you rise early not to beat the rush of traffic, not to be on time with work, but to seek God, to look for Him? I want to know Him. I want to have a personal relationship with Him. 
Do you hear again those pronouns? You, me, I, you, your, mine. There's a personal relationship that is alive in the wilderness, in that land of death. Beloved, so it should be with us. That even in the most deaf and barren places, there is God in our living relationship with Him. To bring this about, David trains us to pray in a way that will move us, as we saw in so many other psalms, from help me Lord to hallelujah. He moves us from crying out in thirst and in hunger to rejoicing in verse 11. To do this, David first presents us with a pair of glasses. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. David says that in order to have a burning passion for God, to want to get up in the morning wherever we are and seek for God, to have a soul that thirsts for God, to have a flesh that longs for God, that understands all the appetites of this life, to be but a picture of our true appetite, which is God, we must first have eyes that see. Eyes that see the power and the glory of God. This is achieved preeminently. We we train our eyes. Did you guys know that there's actually a way to train your eyes? When I was a a teenage boy, I go into the eye doctor. And uh, not only do I need super thick glasses because I'm like almost blind, The eye doctor says, do you like to read? And I'm like, yeah, how do you know? And the eye doctor says, because the muscles on this side of the eye that focus up close are like, you know, a bodybuilder muscles. And the eyes out here that look away don't exist. Your whole world exists about 12 inches from your nose because you just read all the time. And so the eye doctor said, you need to train your eyes. Put the book down. Put the book up. Put the book down. Train your eyes. David says we have to train our eyes. We have to discipline our focus because we don't by nature see the power and the glory of God in life and in everyday life and the meals we eat, the clothes we wear, the friends we keep, the work we do. And so David says there's a place we can go to train our eyes. It is his sanctuary. I went into the sanctuary of God where I could see the power and the glory of God, where I could understand how to see it. Now, for David, that might mean the temple that he pitched next to his palace in Jerusalem. For David, that might mean Shiloh, where the tent had been pitched prior under Eli, the high priest. Perhaps David is referring in the future to Solomon and his temple. In our day, it refers to something far more expansive. Something in which those buildings saw their fulfillment, the person and work of Jesus Christ. I have learned to look for you in Christ. I have learned to put on my nose the spectacles of Jesus. Now we may speak of this room as a sanctuary, some of us as an auditorium. We might even have a great debate over which one's proper. This much we must say. Christ is the holy place of God. And in Christ is all the holiness of God. In Him we learn to see power and glory of God worked out in life. So when we walk into the wilderness and we say, where's the glory of God here? 
When we walk into the wilderness and we say, where's the power of God here? Jesus is there with us to whisper, oh, it's here. Let me show you. See John Miller, Jack Miller, had a great line in a letter that he wrote to a young pastor. I am convinced that anyone who prays, Lord, show me how to glorify you, will not go long without an answer. It's a prayer he loves to answer. Jesus, where are you at work in my life? Jesus, where are you at work in the world? We are so often blind to the power and glory of God at work around us and among us because we think he's doing it in something other than Jesus. We think he's doing it in me. We think he's doing it in the programs that we have. We think he's doing it in all of our rituals and our routines. And we forget that the value of what we do is in the name and the one in whom we are doing it. He is the Holy One in whom is the power and glory of God. We learn to see Jesus in everything we do. But then secondly, David says that we must learn to evaluate the love of God in Christ as worth more than our life. There are three lines given to this in verses 3 and 4. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. Notice the fascinating parallel that at the end of the first line in verse 3, your loving kindness is better than life. Then the final line in verse 4, thus I will bless you while I live. Your love is worth more than my life. So I'm going to spend my whole life praising you for your love. This is how the wilderness becomes a place of refreshment for us. We learn to go into the wilderness and see there the power and glory of God in Christ. But secondly, when we go into the wilderness, we learn there to treasure the love of God above everything else. I mean, frankly... When you're in the wilderness, you don't have anything else, do you? You have nothing else to treasure. There's no water. There's no prosperity. There's no power. There's nothing to which you can look and on which you can hope. You have only the love of God. And David is there in the wilderness saying, your love is worth more than my life. If I were to spend my whole life in the wilderness with nothing but the love of God, That'd be a life well lived. If I were to spend my whole life blessing you and praising you for your love, even if I never tasted another earthly evidence of it, that would be a life worth living. From every breath you just inhaled, to every meal you have ever had, to every sip of water you've enjoyed, It's from Jesus. It's a token of his love. And it's a fountain of praise and of blessing, says David, that we might worship him. To find the wilderness, a place of refreshing, we must find there the eyes to see Jesus, the heart to worship the love of God. And then thirdly, he says in verses 4 and 5, I will lift up my hands to your name, My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. This is one of my favorite metaphors. It's very timely, as we are now in the month of November. 
David literally says, my soul shall be satisfied with fat. Lots of fat. What David means by this is all the juicy, rich, meaty parts. What he means is, those who were there last night, do you remember when the dessert table opened? That's what he means. That's what he's talking about. My soul will be satisfied. But there's something that's disruptive in the metaphor. Souls aren't satisfied with food. Are they? All the men go, yes. (laughs) Yes, they are. David says, I will enjoy such an abundance of goodness, such an abundance of the best goodness. I will have a fullness of all the wonderful things of life that it will cause my hands to shoot up. Um, I know we're Reformed Presbyterians, but, but this is a, an act of worship that was common with Hebrews, where the Jewish culture would lift up their hands. It, it means they got their hands above their shoulders. It was up. You guys with me? He would lift up his hands to the Lord. But notice this metaphor is explained in the verse. I will lift up your hand, my hands to your name. David is in the wilderness, and when he says that I will be satisfied with an abundance of all the good things in life, he doesn't mean steak or even dessert. He means the name of God. That is the name that satisfies the soul. Hence, in verse 5, he says, My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I will praise the name of God that you have put on my lips. He knows God. God has been revealed to him. He has seen Jesus and experienced the love of God in Jesus and so now knows God and can speak his name. They are now bound in an intimate relationship where he can stretch out his hands toward God and say his name in praise and in worship. There is this binding of God and of man together in the wilderness through Christ. But then, in verse 6, David remembers God's help. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. David is not in a bed. David might have an old-fashioned hammock. David might go like his ancestor Jacob and put up a rock for a pillow. How many of you have slept on rocks for pillows? I mean, it maybe works when you're like a teenager, but by 40? Ugh. A strange bed doesn't work after 40. And here is David once again in a wilderness devoid of bed, saying, when I'm on my bed, when I am laying down in the comfort of the goodness of my God, I remember all through the night your help. How you have been my help, my companion. This is a theologically rich word like name. This is a theologically rich word like love. This is a theologically rich word like sanctuary. These various metaphors of the expression of the presence of God. God is with David in the wilderness as a sanctuary. God is with David in the wilderness as love and as name and as help. 
This goes back to the garden where the woman was brought to Adam as a help. You have been my help, my companion who knows me, who lives intimately with me, who cares for me. And if you think it this great impropriety that David would look up to God and say, you have been my helpmate, the one who sticks with me, the one who fulfills the vow and says, through sickness and through health, for better and for worse, for richer, for poorer, you have been my God, my help, who has never left me. You have been bound to me in this marriage covenant. Notice the reverse of the metaphor then. Verse 7. Therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. This is also a theologically rich metaphor pointing back to Ruth. Who on that dark night crawled into the campground of Boaz. And said, spread over your servant the shadow of your wings. David in one breath says, you have been my help. Like a spouse who's been with me through everything. And in the next verse he says, and in the shadows of your wings I will rejoice. You have been to me a husband who has embraced me. David gives to God both sides of the marriage metaphor. To show how the totality of his welfare is in God. Every good thing from God, be it help or be it the shadow of his wings, is in fact God and not in David. And so for this reason, David says in verse 8, My soul follows closely behind you and your right hand holds me up. The metaphor is complete. My soul chases you. You are the spouse to whom I am bound. You are the God that I say of you, my God, a personal God who I myself know. And when I am alone in the wilderness, I have the best friend the world ever knew. And when I am alone in the wilderness, I am united to the true lover of my soul. And my soul follows you close behind because your right hand holds me up. I love that image. You'll have opportunity this afternoon to witness that metaphor. Just watch closely. At some point this afternoon, there will be a little child falling closely behind a parent because the parent's right hand is holding him up. You know, dragging him along. David says, I have come safely into and through the wilderness because your right hand is holding mine. Because you are the God who is with me. You are the God who is my sanctuary when I am in the wilderness. The God who loves me into life when I am in the place of death. The God whose name satisfies me when I am starving. The God whose help is with me all through the day and all through the night. The God whose wings shadow over me. David then says, but... Having set up this sequence of metaphors, David has heaped upon us this abundance of the love of God. He's with us. He's done every good thing for us. The wilderness is no longer a frightening place. It's a beautiful place where the love of God comes into view. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. David speaks in three successive imageries of the complete failure of his enemies. 
They shall go into the lower parts of the earth. That is, they shall die. They shall go into the grave. He says, they shall be poured out by the hand or fall by the sword. That is, they shall be defeated and come to nothing. They shall be prey or portion for jackals. They shall be devoured and forgotten and removed from earth. But notice that David puts at the first line in verse 9 this emphasis, those who seek my life. Those who seek to destroy my life. David is here in his language creating a comparison with verse 1. What is David seeking? God. What is David not seeking? Life. Those who seek to destroy my life have completely misunderstood what I'm trying to do here in the world. Those who seek to tear down all my life's work, those who seek to tear down the value of everything I have to say or to offer, have completely misunderstood the point. You can have my life. I'm not seeking to keep it. I am seeking God. I'm seeking to know Him. I'm seeking to live in a relationship with Him. As if He were someone I could talk to. As if He were someone I could get to know and spend time with. I I want to have a vibrant, personal relationship with God. They seek my life, and that's entirely beside the point. They seek for life, and they're going to lose it. Because there's no life in seeking life. There's no life in adding to life. The perpetual pursuit of elongating life, of prospering life, of adding life to life, it's a fool's errand. It ends in death, it ends in destruction. We all become prey to jackals. No, the seeking of life produces no life. The seeking of God produces life. And not just any kind of life. As Jesus promised, life abundant. Notice verse 11. The king shall rejoice in God. Who's that? That's a little confusing. David is writing about the time that he's hiding in the wilderness from King Saul. Who really doesn't seem to be doing a lot of rejoicing in God. Hence the trying to kill David thing. Is it David? Well, he's not yet king. Is it David as a type and shadow of Christ? For truly, the king who rejoices in God in all his ways was Jesus. This is why we read Matthew chapter 4. Because this experience in the wilderness of David was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. That we could go back through each of these metaphors. And as I hinted at along the way, sometimes I made explicit. Each of these metaphors are pressing us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He who is the true sanctuary of God. His name is Emmanuel. He who is the love of God in the flesh. He who is the name of God come in the flesh. Whose name is he saves, Yeshua. He who is with us as a helpmate. Of whom the metaphor of marriage stands as a symbol according to Ephesians 5. As a picture of Christ in his church. Each of the metaphors that David here has chosen to use are explicitly New Testament metaphors of Jesus and his saving work in the church. He is the king who rejoices in God and notice the sweet promise 
Everyone who swears by Him shall glory. Everyone who goes into the wilderness with Christ, according to the book of Hebrews, who goes outside the camp to dwell with Him in the wilderness, everyone who swears by Him and says, in Christ is my life, in Christ is my love, in Christ is my joy, he shall glory. Everyone who has hope in Christ alone has hope that never fails. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. David ends with this quiet refrain. He settles our souls back into the dust of the wilderness. We look with him out on the barren landscape and realize we're still living with the liars. We're still living with the great deceiver, Satan. We're still stuck on this earth awaiting all the glory that is here manifested as Christ. But he promises us we need not lose hope. The mouth of the one who lies to us, who says to us, you can't get out of here. You can't survive. You can't make it. That mouth that lies shall be stopped. And we are offered something extraordinarily different. Salvation. Do you guys know what is one of the biggest rules about being lost in the wilderness? Stay put. If you start wandering around looking for help, trying to find your way out of the wild, you severely diminish your chances of being found. They tell you to stay put. That gets really hard when you're thirsty. That gets really hard when you're hungry. And your Heavenly Father knows that. He knows that this wilderness is hard to sit in when you're waiting for the glory of heaven. So he does something extraordinary, just as he did with our fathers in the wilderness. He serves us a table in the presence of our enemies. He sets a table in the wilderness. And he says, come, eat, and drink. What I have said to you from Psalm 63, Jesus is always with you. He is the presence and blessing of God with you. Follow him into praise it is not mere word. It is the experience of saints around the world. And it is the symbol in front of you. You can actually taste and see that Jesus is with you always. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven. You are our God. We have no other God. Forgive us the other gods of our imagination. Forgive us the gods of our invention. Oh God, You alone are God. And thank You for those wilderness times where we are bereft of every earthly comfort. And where we are left desperate and dependent on You. Where we discover that in you is the fullness of glory and grace, that in you are all the treasures and riches of heaven and earth, 
that to know you, Father, and to live with you in a loving relationship is the high and holiest summons in all the earth. And that all the good things of this life are meant to be tokens of that love and grace by which we know you and by which we rejoice in you. So bless us, Father, this day that we would heed and hear these words and obey and that we would come now to the supper and be blessed. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's respond.